This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. Before we set off on this week's arts tour, I want to extend my thanks to all the volunteers who helped with that final push to move KOPN and all its accumulated stuff out of our home of 49 years and over to our new home on Bernadette Drive. There was a lot of stuff and now there are a lot of boxes, but we made what many thought was impossible come true. We moved KOPN to a fully accessible building of our own and that is thanks to wonderful donors who have contributed almost $480,000 so far. A board president who never gives up, thank you Linda Day, board members who go above and beyond to move mountains and a giant music library and so, so many volunteers and our own incredible staff. And as if moving to a new home was not enough, I also want to give a huge welcome to our new executive director, Jet Ainsworth, who just this week took over the well-worn but unbreakable reins of the station. Jet has been working in radio for 25 years, plus he's a songwriter and musician and filmmaker. In fact, his brand new film, Soul Graffiti, was shot in large part on location at KOPN back in 2020. So if you're sensing a shifting of the KOPN energy field, then your senses are spot on. And so... On to the arts. We've got poetry, a play that will make you laugh and possibly weep, that grapples with one couple's questions about family, change, hope, betrayal, and the carbon footprint of a baby. And an arts arrival interview with a man newly in charge of the University of Missouri's Museum of Art and Archaeology. So, got your drinks ready? Off we pop! 1100 years ago, in the year 905, the Japanese poet Kino Surayuki wrote that the poetry of Japan has its seeds in the human heart and mind, a nightingale singing among the blossoms, the voice of a pond-dwelling frog, listening to these, what living being would not respond with his own poem? And that might be the perfect description for the collected poetry of my guest this evening, West Plains-based poet Dave Malone. Dave grew up in Roller, listening to Vincent Price's macabre tales in Radio Mystery Theatre, reading fantasy books like Dr. Doolittle and Madeleine Lengel's A Wrinkle in Time. But as an adult poet, Dave Malone invites us to explore the human heart and mind and consider the thoughts and emotions aroused by the natural world. He's the author of seven books of poetry which focus on love, landscapes and the little moments that linger as we sail along the bubbling brook of life. His most recent book, titled Tornado Drill and published by Kelsey Books, came out just a couple of months ago and about which one of the book's reviewers commented, Don't let the title fool you. This is no drill. There is real danger here. It's undercurrent felt in every precise image. It's power 
palpable. You cannot help but be pulled into this vortex, astonished by the beauty and possibility you will discover here. And that reviewer was spot on. Dave Malone, what a pleasure to have you on Speaking of the Arts. Hi, Diana. Thank you for that amazing introduction. Do you think you might have had a previous life in the Heian courts of Japan 1100 years ago? How did you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I, I can really resonate with that simplistic lifestyle for sure and that appreciation for the human heart. Right. Yes. A beautiful love poetry. That seems to be the line that goes through all of your works. I mean, reading your poems in Tornado Drill, along with little snippets of poems from your other books, it is clear that you have a wonderful capacity to find words for feelings that just waft wordlessly around the rest of us. And I'm curious whether you are equally expressive in the moment when you need to speak about emotions or whether your eloquence is all on the page. You're going to ask me a very tough question, and I like it. (laughs) Um, Well, as I've gotten older, I have learned to become more eloquent in the present moment. But certainly, it, I think, is especially easy for us writers, um, for we writers, to speak about emotion from a distance and and sometimes not get engaged in the moment. Uh, One of my favorite quotes is from William Wordsworth. And when he talks about poetry, he says that it is emotion recollected in tranquility. Mm. And I really like that because that's a difference between what we may experience in the present moment and that which is the job of poetry. And I think the job of poetry is to, precisely what he says, is to be able to get at an emotion, but do so in a quiet manner and so that it can resonate more fully. I, mean, I, sort of, I suppose it's sort of like a musical composition. You know, it's going to take a while to, to work on that composition and layer it in such a way that it could really strike at, um, at a person's emotions. I find that having things written down is just so much easier that I'm more verklempt when it's in the moment, trying to think of things, <laughs> the right way to phrase things. Whereas on paper, it just, there's extra worlds of time available to you on paper. <laughs> <laughs> almost indeed, most definitely. And I like how you, what did you just say, like uh, in your intro there, a bubbling brook. Yes, I mean, that eloquence can be right easier for us when we get to write it down for some of us. Right. So before the pandemic, you used to take your typewriter to art fairs and write poetry for tips and I'm disappointed that you never came to art in the park here in Colombia while I was running the festival but I am curious about how that writing process worked and how satisfying it was working at speed while someone's looking over your shoulder and waiting for their poem before they go and get you know a candy floss or something and then and then just letting it go I mean those poems that you write then they're just whoop they're gone into space and time well, sure. I'm going to deflect a little bit and, te- and tell me more about art in the park. Is it gone forever? Will it return? Is <laughs> it, it will. It's just happened. The first weekend oh. in June. So I hope oh you will goodness. come up here next year and, and write poetry. But how did that work? People just stood there and, and did you ask them questions? How did that work? Sure. You know, folks would come up and say, you know, they wanted a poem. And sometimes they would have a specific experience that they wanted me to write about for them. And it really was a broad spectrum of things. I mean, the very difficult is the loss of a loved one. That really is difficult to, I'm even uncomfortable talking about it, if you could tell, to try to get into the the spirit of that thing, to try to 
really feel compassion and feel through them what that must have felt like. You know, easier poems are, I want one about this crappy job I've got and I'm pretty angry and I don't know how to express it. Can you help me? I'm like, sure. Been there. Had lots of crappy jobs. I think I can express that in a, in a few beats. I will also say, yeah, there's something beautiful about the process of writing a short poem, giving it away, letting it go, letting it be the thing to them that's important and that they maybe post it on the refrigerator, put it in their journal or enjoy it for a day and it gets recycled. It's all good. <laughs> so nobody ever handed it back and said, I don't like this. Can you do it again? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. We'll see next June how things pan out. So going back to Tornado Drill, reading through it, I wondered how much of the book was autobiographical because it felt like you were taking me on a journey through your childhood, your loves, the people you have known, the nature you find yourself in, the life that swirls around you. So tell me about the amount of artistic license versus life story in Tornado Drill. Oh, if I had such an interesting life as the book depicts. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'd say, you know, 50, 50, 40, 60. I I mean, I really think that, you know, as poets and writers, we work with what's in front of us, and then we take a lot of poetic license. So with regard to my book, you know, usually there's a moment that strikes me in recollection and or a line, a really great line, and so then I can access it, and then I try to build a narrative from there. And then usually by the end of the poem, try to really whip it around in some way or really move the reader to a realization or to a a feeling. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Okay. So Tornado Drill, the title poem of the book, mm-hmm. it feels like that was you when you were there in the classroom beneath the school desks, our legs angle and lean like autumn crickets. I mean, those were mm-hmm. your legs underneath the uh, school desk, were they not? Look at you. Yes, they were. <laughs> and, uh, I was in fourth grade, and uh, we were in Riley, Kansas at the time, my family. And so I remember going to elementary school there, and in that classroom, it was like attached to the cafeteria. And one afternoon, just this huge storm came up, and, and the windows turned brown. And we were there under our desks, and uh, it was pretty scary. Mm. And so I used that experience to weave details so that the reader can appreciate what it's like to be a child, to be scared, but also to be, not to give away the ending of the poem, but to perhaps be interested in adventure. Do you have an amazing memory or have you been a copious note taker your whole life? (laughs) Copious note taker. Yeah, I have scads of journals. I mean, I think that's that's so important. I, I would share with your listeners, especially for those who are beginning to write or closet writers, journaling is such an excellent way to have a writing practice. And so for me, I started journaling when I was in high school. And so taking notes over the years and Making observations is helpful to the process. And plus, you're in it. You know, if you're writing all the time, you're just down in it. And so that eventually you'll discover, oh, is there fuel here for poetry? Is there fuel here for fiction? Is there fuel here for playwriting, etc.? If that's your, your vibe. 
Well, I would love to have you read a couple of works from the book. And, and there were so many that I liked that it was very difficult just to choose a couple. But I did particularly like one called Close Call and one called We Don't Check Our Phones. So tell us a little bit about those works. And then I would love to have you read them for us. Sure. Close Call is a poem that's set in Paris. And basically you have a protagonist who is unhappy in his current situation and starts to take a walk. So we'll leave it at that before we get to the poem. And We Don't Check Our Phones is just about a, a drive into the countryside and seeing flowers and then wondering what is their genus and species and should we look it up on our phones? So before you read them, can I just ask you, are these in the autobiographical component of the book or are they in the artistic license part of the book? 50-50 again, loosely based <laughs> on an experience. And then I just make stuff up. Okay, all right, off you go. Close call. That afternoon in Paris, April hung down her head and spit. Umbrellas whipped about like ripped flags. My lover sulked in our flat with mac and cheese and graffitied the foggy windows with her pinky finger. I'd had enough of enough and trudged out for a single pint, a skunky German beer at a tiny bar, then just left, left, and a couple rights. It was on a side street I didn't know. My phone suggested the shortcut. The rain had stopped. It was just him and me. Well, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I want to know who he was. Well, you're about to get beaten up. I mean, what, what was about to happen? I was on the edge of my seat. You get to choose. You get to decide. So, yeah, that one was very intriguing. Just that last line. It was just him and me. Someone you knew, someone you weren't expecting to see, somebody that was threatening, somebody that maybe you had an immediate feeling for. It was just mm. there were all these possibilities. And, and I wanted to ask you what happened next. But I guess I'll never know. No, you won't. But I love that idea that it's uh, someone surprising, like, oh, maybe that's someone I haven't seen in 20 years. Yeah. That's an interpretation of the poem I hadn't heard yet. Okay, there you go. Love it. Okay. We don't check our phones. Thank you. In April, my spouse and I drive the blacktop to a hiking trail where the woods don't wish to show us a map and grow vines flouting the best intentions of the county's caretaker. We zip 60 miles per hour away from the virus toward forgotten homesteads and paths of yellow flowers. She and I fight over the name. Is it jonquil or daffodil? Which is genus and which is species? We do nothing to confirm or not confirm, and the forest gives no answer. Now, I love that because one of my husband's favorite phrases is whenever a question comes up and somebody suggests, oh, you know, well, let's just check on Google. My husband says, let's not crush the wonder. Let's just sit and wonder because we have lost the ability to wonder. We have to have an answer immediately. What was that song called? What was that film called? Who was that person in that film? And sometimes it's just nice to wander for a while and let your brain do the work. <laughs> so that was what spoke to me in that poem. 
Oh my goodness. I'm going to steal that. Can I just steal that straight away? Let's not crush the wonder. That's sure. a poem title. Tell your husband that is a, or it's a song. It is. Right? He, he wanted to have a website called crushthewonder.com, but <laughs> I feel like it was already taken. <laughs> so you have a beautiful conciseness about your vocabulary, yet within that very crisp succinctness, you manage to contain volumes of imagery, which often appear as a single couplet. In Tornado Drill, I love where you write, dust motes float and sparkle above the tongues of our sneakers. And in 9.15 to Memphis, I just adore the lines, he grew a pair of teenage girls for a while, their hips, hypnotized water sprinklers in the summer. And in Promises, I was hypnotized by her red hair, thick as bisque, smelled of bourbon and smoke during our hangover mornings while a breeze through the corn snuggled her window at dawn. Did these lines come to you with ease or are your poems works that are crafted over many hours or months? Sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't. So some of the lines I got and some of the lines I worked over like you're, you're whisking a bisque. Mm. You have a lot of couplets. I guess you call them couplets. I'm not big mm-hmm. on my terminology. What is it that attracts you to that couplet format? Well, you know what's funny? When I first saw couplets in modern poetry, I'm like, oh, no, you can't <laughs> do that. You're not, you're not making them iambic, and they're just, no, you're cheating. And then in time, I started using them more and more. And I felt like you could get away with a free verse couplet. I, I like them because they're organizational. They're tight. They, they can capture two or three seconds in a certain way. You know, and a full stanza where you have 10 or 12 lines, they do their work, too, in a different way. It's more like those 10 or 12 lines are... I don't know, they're like weightlifters. <laughs> and they, I, I'm just coming off the cuff here thinking. And then the, the other lines are sprinters, maybe. They're very effective. And I think somehow maybe it speaks to our modern day brains that are increasingly unable to focus on long pieces of text because we're just used to this flickering of short messages and tweets and text messages. And, and to be able to just look at two lines of text somehow it's still within our brain's capacity. <laughs> when it gets longer, and then it's like, oh my goodness, there's like 12 lines I have to read all at once. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you're calling it. That is so true. That is, that is it. And so, I think I, I was just going to say, I naturally sort of, I think, fell into that. I'm like, well, well hell, I don't want to read 12 lines stacked up like that. I want two. Give me two. I watched your... Talking of brevity, I watched your short movie called Tea, which people can find on your website at davemalone.net. And I've watched it a few times. It's only a minute long. And yet, like your poetry, it is both vast and concise. It's beautifully and movingly shot and written. Give me just a quick little background on this short film. Oh, certainly. And we have to start by talking about Isaac Protova and Ezra Fike. They are the young men who who did the work, did the most of the work. They directed, produced. My involvement was at first with the, the script idea and then tweaking the script some and showing up on set and saying very little and letting them do their amazing work. So 
the three of us just came up with an idea. We, we wanted to submit to a one-minute film contest and said, threw around some ideas. I'm like, oh, this sounds like a good one. And so from that T, the little script emerged, and then we were able to use a really wonderful location in the town of West Plains in the old bank building in a quick, short film. Did you win? We were one of the six winners, yes, but not the grand winner. Not the first prize, but they were awarded like six top prizes and we were one of those. It's great. I would definitely recommend if people just take a minute to watch it. It's very eerie and beautiful and sad and has it has all the emotions in it. Thank you so much. You can find poet Dave Malone at davemalone.net and from there you can also connect his books and watch his short film Tea. Plus you can also find him on Patreon as well. Dave, thank you so much for sharing a little of your writing with us today and for making time to chat. Well, I wanted to say thank you so much for an amazing interview. It was really wonderful. In the two-person play Lungs, written by British playwright Duncan Macmillan, there is a discussion about the carbon footprint of having a baby, which is cited as having a footprint of 10,000 tonnes of CO2, which equates to the weight of the Eiffel Tower, eliciting the comment from the main female character that were they to have a child, she would in fact be giving birth to the Eiffel Tower. Whether or not that 10,000 tonnes is correct, there are plenty of studies that suggest that the greenest adult is childless and lives alone. And the play follows the couple as they grapple with their own love and what it means to give birth in our times and their dilemma that the ice caps are melting, there's overpopulation, political unrest, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Why on earth would someone bring a baby into this world? It was described by The Guardian critic Lynn Gardner as a brutally honest, funny, edgy and current off-kilter love story about two flawed but deeply human people who you don't always like but start to feel you might love. And the three people bringing lungs to the stage in Colombia are my next guests. Founder of Greenhouse Theatre Project, Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri, who will be staging lungs at Stevens College's Firestone Bar Chapel later this month, along with the play's two protagonists, New York-based actors Anna Sundberg and Rob Glaws, both of whom are veterans of Greenhouse Theatre Productions. Hello, everybody. Hi. Hello. Hello. So the playwright said in an interview, that there's nothing I can do in my life to compensate for the fact that the world would be better without me in it, which is maybe not quite how I think about my existence. But I do think in case we ever get attacked by bears, it'd be much better for the world if my husband Tom was saved over me because he can engineer solar power systems and all I do is make a weekly radio show about the arts. I'm not sure I can honestly justify my own existence. <laughs> Elizabeth, do you comfort yourself knowing that the arts are vital to the soul of society? <laughs> well, you know, okay, so yes, because during the pandemic, I think a lot of people um, felt like one of the things missing in their lives was A, not only just congregating with people, but B, the arts, being able to um, get together and, and create something that they could then share with the masses. And we were just missing that feeling of gathering and worshiping the arts as, as we some of us like to do. And so yeah, I mean, of course, I think it's a vital, vital part of uh, the world and storytelling is one of the oldest forms of entertainment. So that's, you know, we got to keep it going. 
Well, if I'm remembering correctly, Elizabeth, this would have been part of Greenhouse Theatre's 2020 season, but got postponed and then postponed. And now it feels more timely than ever. Mm. But tell me a little about your introduction to this play and and how it resonated with you. Mm, Yeah. Okay. so in 2015, uh, I took Greenhouse to the UK and actually Rob Gloss was part of that cast that performed Stay La Nuit, which was an original piece that co-founder Emily Adams and I had written and performed in Columbia a year or two before that. And so we brought that show over there and there was a lot of buzz about this play by Duncan McMillan that had been performing over there called Lungs. And I just couldn't fit it into my schedule the week that we were performing the times weren't right it was either performing at the same time we were performing or I couldn't get over there and the the very last day that I was in Edinburgh Emily and myself we finished our show I think we had a matinee that day and we sprinted we dead sprinted like across (laughs) the downtown to get there and uh, Payne's Plow, who is performing the piece, they perform their shows in this tent, this circular tent that they can just pack up and move around wherever they they go. And so we, we ran, we got to this tent and we were swiftly turned away because they were packing the house and turning people away. So we, so we missed our opportunity. And, you know, I was, it was like one of those devastating moments. I think Emily and I went and sat and and had a, had a whiskey and, you know, we're really, really bummed about it. But then a couple of the actors who had come over with Greenhouse were staying longer in Edinburgh and they got a chance to see it after we left. And one of them gave me the script and he said, this is just so you, Liz, and someday Greenhouse just has to do it. And so, you know, that was back in 2015. So I've been holding on to it and waiting and waiting and waiting for the right time to do it. And you were right, we were supposed to do it in 2020, but then the pandemic hit. I do feel like I've heard you talk about this play for many years. Mm -hmm. Anna, of the two people in the play, you play the one with a uterus. Tell us about her and how much of you that you see in her. We we both have uteruses. (laughs) Uh, I do, and my character does. (laughs) My character actually feels really different from me as a as a person, but she's been really fun to inhabit. Um, She's like extremely neurotic and has to think all of her thoughts out loud, which sometimes leads to hurting feelings because it's literally like all of her thoughts out loud. (laughs) And uh, she is really concerned about whether or not she should bring uh, a person into the world, um, the world as it is, and we don't know what the future is going to be like. And um, she also feels like there's a certain sort of uh, maybe arrogance to wanting to make another human out of our own genes. And she she thinks, she's like, what makes us worthy of doing this? What makes us the right people to do this? Like, are we even going to be good parents? Are we even good people? Mm-hmm. Those are a lot of her anxieties out loud. Yeah. And Rob, your character I read somewhere by a critic was described as a new man in Nike trainers nodding along to his partner's stridency. <laughs> Tell us about the man in the play. And, and again, if you see any of yourself in him. Absolutely. Anna and I talk about how um, 
I tend to play roles that are more maybe what she's playing, and she tends to play roles that more <laughs> that I'm playing. Uh, usually, I'm the neurotic one, um, but no, I do, I do. He, you know, I think Anna's character is the one that really spills her thoughts and her neuroses about is it moral to bring a child into this world, um, not only for the child's sake but also for the world's sake. You know, we talk about bring one person into this world, what effect that has on the on the environment over the span of one person's lifetime. And he's sort of grounding her in, um, on remember why we're doing this. Remember what it means to have a baby. This is why we want to do it. And yes, we are good people. We're going to raise a good person. And um, so, yeah, I do, I do align with a lot of stuff in the play, but I do think it's fun that we're both playing opposites in terms of the archetypes we're doing. Mm-hmm. Playing each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm playing Rob Laws, and Rob <laughs> is playing Anna Sunbridge. <laughs> Elizabeth, this must be a particularly gripping play for you as you've just had your second child. And so I have to ask you, how many of the questions and dilemmas that the two protagonists go through are questions you asked yourself? Oh, my gosh. This whole play is just it's it's kind of therapeutic, really, because I feel like most of the time we're sitting around you know, discussing our own personal experiences or conversations, like you said, that match what these characters are going through. And yeah, it, it's, uh, it makes you feel selfish. I'll tell you that much, (laughs) you know, and when you say, okay, well, one child that was for us. And then now we've done that. And, but two child just seems a little extravagant, right. On the environment. And so, yeah, I'm definitely feeling, especially this time, in in our world with all of the the issues that we're just dealing with day to day it seems like really really you want to do this you want to you want to bring another person in the world who has to empathize learn to empathize and and process and go through the trials and tribulations <laughs> that we as human beings are are dealing with in this world now and i guess the answer is yes because we did it and <laughs> When we, we, you know, it's, it's just, it's hard. It's, it's hard to like go to rehearsal and then come home and say, oh man, look at, look at my baby and be like, yeah, maybe that wasn't, maybe that wasn't the smartest. Look at my two Eiffel Towers. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Anna, talk a little bit about your relationship with Rob's character. You are both at a transition age, maybe moving from your twenties into your thirties. There are clearly strains on the relationship beyond the having a baby thing. Mm -hmm. If you imagined your character going out for drinks with her girlfriends, what is she (laughs) saying about him? Oh, well, God, honestly, I think she'd be saying really, really kind things about him. Like, I, I love that I'm in a PhD program, my character is, and I think that he probably goes through my books more than I do. Um, (laughs) I find him incredibly, incredibly smart, and he is such a good caretaker for me he listens to me really well and he also like is always like making me breakfast or like making a bath for me or he just like takes care of me so well but I guess like the juicy the juicy parts I guess it he doesn't want to get married (laughs) and I really really want to marry him like really badly (laughs) and I have to try to figure out a, why he doesn't want to get married, and B, how long would I wait? How long will I wait? 
it is something that I really want, and I'd like to do it with him. But if he doesn't want to do it with me, then then I have some figuring stuff to figure out, you know. But I, I'm also really curious. Like, if we were in, like, a, a couple's counseling session, I would want to dig into, like, why, really, like, why he doesn't want to get married. Because I feel like he's very committed to me. And such a good partner. So I don't know why that like little piece of paper, that ring like is so scary. (laughs) Well, I would love to have you both perform a short scene from the play. Elizabeth, set the scene for us. And then Anna and Rob, over to you. Yeah. Okay. So the characters are sitting in their car and they uh, have just been processing this heavy question. Should we have a child? What does this mean? And perhaps from that, what kind of parents will we be? I worry I might be one of those fathers who doesn't notice his kids unless they're winning stuff or getting in trouble. I don't want to be one of those mothers who only lives through their children. I want want to still read books and do things. I will not use having a child as an excuse for becoming an idiot. You're not your mother. You're not your dad. I want to be able to play with my kids without it having to be competitive or educational. I want to still have sex. We can't let it ruin our... People get so boring and it doesn't have to be like that. I don't want to have to host the best birthday parties or make the best Chewbacca costume for Halloween. Or push our kids to do stuff they don't want to do. Harp lessons. But it has to value learning and be able to think for itself. But not so thoughtful that it gets depressed and lonely. Autumn babies get picked first for sports. No princesses or soldiers. No guns and tiaras. Disney will not dictate what our... schools are a mess, we have to get on the board or join the PTA. We're talking about it. Look at us. There are so many hilarious parts to kind of what is, I guess it's a tragic comedy ultimately, but I mean, it's just, there's so many great one-liners in this play. I, I love the interplay between the two characters. This is a play that was designed to be performed on a bare stage without scenery, furniture or props, without any costume changes. The playwright asks that each production is set in the city it is being performed in. So it's a perfect minimalist greenhouse theatre project show. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth, tell me about your choice of venue and how you want to stage it. Mm, yeah. So I have, I fell in love with the chapel up at Stevens the first time I was in there. It's such a groovy kind of architecture and it definitely is, it's retro, but it is also classic, I think. And it is a very small thrust stage. Um, the audience is around three sides And, um, so, you know, it it can't have a large cast. It can't have a lot going on necessarily. And you just really don't need it because the space itself is so intriguing to be in. And so it had to be the right piece. And this was the right piece. There is an incredible speed to the actor's dialogue. As the playwright notes, from the very beginning, the characters speak more quickly than you'd expect. Also, time and place change sometimes in what seems to be the midpoint of a particular conversation. Talk a little bit about how you direct that component of the play and so that you don't lose the audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talk about this a lot, really, because the pacing is such a huge part. It's like a third character. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's just like this, um, this roller coaster that they're on. Because you you travel with it, it's kind of like you're on a high speed bullet train, okay? 
And the actor's job is to keep us on the tracks. And it's challenging because we have to be able to follow everything that is being said. But at the same time, it's all about this musicality and this dance that the that the two characters are having with each other. And it and it really, in a lot of ways, is naturalistic, you know? I mean, when you have a partner that you can really spawn with, um, that you can, you know, just hit the ball back and forth like that, it, it does have kind of a natural sense to it. But at the same time, I mean, it is, it is definitely not the way my husband and I <laughs> talk to each other. There are a lot more like dramatic pauses and deep breaths and stuff. And, and so it does feel kind of off the hinges sometimes when I'm when I'm in rehearsal. But it's, it's really fun to, um, to play with the rhythm, the speed, the pacing of the piece. And um, there are times like this morning in rehearsal where we kind of pulled things back and the actors were really listening to each other. And we just started finding all this new stuff come to the surface. So it's, you know, we're, we're very much so in the process of, of digging and clawing our way through the material right now. So we'll see where we land, but in a perfect world, you know, I have, I have a time of like, you know, a runtime of what I'd like to hit, but at the same time, I, I want the the actors to be able to manage the material. Mm. As the author's notes say at the outset of this play, it's a single conversation that spans a lifetime. He also said in an interview that most of what he wants to say about life in his plays isn't particularly coherent and that all his plays have some internal contradiction that he can't resolve. So final thought, Elizabeth, is there a coherence in this play for you? <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah, no. I mean, I think we just read this my stage manager just read that same quote aloud <laughs> to us the other night in rehearsal. And and I and I love that. I love when a writer is like, "Yeah, I have no idea what this is about." <laughs> or or this is an answer. This is asking more questions than it's answering any. I don't want to resolve necessarily what this is because that way it is open-ended to everyone. You know what I mean? It, it's open to you to try to resolve it in your own way. And I feel like I leave rehearsal with way more questions than I do answers. And so I think that that's, that's something that good art does for us. You know what I mean? It stirs us up and it spits us out. And I hope, I hope the audience feels that way too. When they, when they come and see it. I feel sure they will. Greenhouse Theatre Project's production of the Duncan Macmillan play Lungs will be at the Firestone Bars Chapel on Stevens College campus from July the 20th to the 23rd. To find out more, go to greenhousetp.org and Elizabeth Brown Palmieri, Anna Sundberg and Rob Glaws. Thanks for taking us behind the curtains and for making time to chat. Thank you, Diana. Thank you. Thank you. When notable arts people leave mid-Missouri, I like to give them an arts exit interview, a way to remind us of all they have done in our communities and also a peek into their journey ahead. But this week, I have the chance to do an arts arrival interview with the new director of the University of Missouri's Museum of Art and Archaeology, Dan Eck, who officially started in his new role last week. So early days still. He comes to the museum with bags of previous museum experience 
experience having worked with the Museum of the Southwest in Midland, Texas, the Sarasota Museum of Art in Florida, and the John Michael Kohler Art Center in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. But he has also been the president of Lakeland University in Wisconsin, worked for a major Chicago law firm, and was once the associate general counsel for the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. He is a keen backpacker and hiker, says he can't live without Diet Coke and coffee. His unbreakable rule is tell the truth. And his worst ever job was allegedly cleaning out chicken coops, which he once said was somewhat like being a lawyer. Dan Eck, welcome to Columbia and speaking of the arts. Wow. Thank you, Diana. You've done some research. That's uh that's pretty amazing you found those old quotes. That's great. So as the owner of a chicken coop myself, albeit one that is now devoid of chickens thanks to a local fox, I feel like we should start from there. We have that in common. At what point in your life were you a chicken coop cleaner? Well, that was all during junior high and high school. I grew up in central Minnesota in a small town, so we were always just trying to find different things to do to make cash to uh entertain ourselves. So there were plenty of farms around there where they were willing to pay cash for day labor work, detasseling corn, busting sod, cleaning out chicken barns and stuff like that. Good experience. And at what point during your law career did you decide that, in fact, it did remind you of coop cleaning? (laughs) Oh, boy. You know, part of me really enjoyed being a lawyer. I liked the intellectual stimulation and the challenge. But I think there was a certain point where I always felt like the lawyers in the room, we all knew where this was going to go. We all knew where it was going to end up. And we just felt like we had to go through all those motions anyway and, and, and get to that point. And so it just sometimes felt like I was just shoveling and shoveling and shoveling. Um, (laughs) But it was a good boot camp. I mean, you, you know, any type of job like that, you know, there's all sorts of different types of hard work in this country from shoveling actual unpleasant material to metaphorically shoveling unpleasant material. So one way, shape or form, it all has an impact on your life. Mm. So you started out doing a BA in anthropology with a minor in museum studies, and then you swerved off into law. So let's start with what it was that inspired you to go into anthropology and museum studies. Did you clamber along creek beds as a child finding arrowheads? Well, actually, I grew up on a piece of property outside of town that had been a landfill. And I thought it was super exciting as a kid. Anytime you turned over a shovel or, you know, a tree got knocked down in the wind, it would just pull up a bunch of old cans and bottles and other junk with it. And there was a uh, burned down canning factory behind our property that had left the foundations and part of the basement behind that my siblings and I played in all the time. And so I think that type of experience, I was always collecting those old cans and, and old bottles and jumping around these ruins of a of an old factory. And that led me to do some volunteer work at the local historical society when I was in my early teens. That was my first museum experience. And it was primarily dusting off cases and you know moving magazines and journals around. But yeah, I've been, I've been loving that type of uh, work as long as I can remember. But then following on from that, you spent some time studying Middle East politics at the American University in Cairo, and then you headed off to Indiana University to become a doctor of law. So what made you go into law from museums? Well, you come from a small town, and I was a pretty good student growing up in high school. And it seems like in a town like that, they always tell you, well, if you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, because those were kind of our impressions of what smart people did when they went off to college. 
And, you know, after I studied anthropology at Beloit College, I wasn't quite sure what to do with that. So I think like a lot of people in that era, you know, I ended up going to law school, which kind of surprised me. I, I think it dis actually disappointed my parents. They kind of wanted me to be a scientist and an archaeologist. So they were a little shocked that I ended up going to law school. But um, I thought it was a, a great intellectual experience because it really teaches you to think a little bit differently about things. And I don't think a day's gone by in my nonprofit world jobs where I haven't relied on that law degree or that experience I gained as a lawyer. So after several years working in museums, in 2006, you made another career detour, this time into education, becoming the Director of Development and External Relations for the Savannah College of Design in Georgia, before heading back north to work with and eventually become the president of Lakeland University in the tiny town of Plymouth, Wisconsin, all of which, if I was predicting and mapping a future career trajectory might make me think that your next job would be as the museum director for an educational institution. So that's how you found us. What took you so long to get here? Well, you know, you never know. I've, I've always you know, joked that I, I'm going to have a very interesting obituary someday, but <laughs> I have found, you know, I've done a number of different things. Some of them I've enjoyed more than others. Some places I've enjoyed working at more than others. I absolutely loved Lakeland University. It was Lakeland College when I started there. And we worked through some tough issues while I was there and came out the other side as Lakeland University. It's just a, a fantastic institution, uh, including a campus in Tokyo, Japan, which I used to get to go to Tokyo a couple times a year and uh, still one of my favorite destinations in the world. And yeah, I think that was some great experience, kind of understanding the importance of, of education. It's easy to say, but when you meet students, and actually get to know them. I got to know a lot of students. I'm still friends with many of the students um, from when I was there. That kind of gets in your blood. And that's why I'm excited to be back at an academic institution working in a museum, because one of our focuses is going to be reintegrating back with the campus community now that we're back here, you know, in the historic Ellis Library, right in the middle of everything here at Mizzou. It's a great opportunity. Well, talking of tough issues, I mean, the Museum of Art and Archaeology has had a challenging few years. Many of us in the community were dismayed to see it leave campus and move to Mizzou North. And then eight years later, have to pack up its 16,000 artifacts once again and move back to campus, which is great, but to a much smaller facility. And so for many people, it has felt that the university does not value the museum. And I, I know it's early days, but tell me a little bit about what excites you about this role. Well, I should say from what I can glean from seeing what's gone on around here, when they had to leave Pickard Hall, that was a pretty tough task to try to find a location that could house a museum like that. So I actually think they're pretty lucky to find Mizzou North. You know, it was out of sight, out of mind, I think, for a lot of people. What I've heard is the community got a lot of benefit out of it while I was up there, but we drifted a bit from the academic center. And so after Mizzou North was becoming closed, coming back down here to campus, I think it's, you know, I think it's a great opportunity. So I, I give Mizzou some credit for trying to figure out a way to house this museum, which has a lot of space requirements. Mm. Safely storing 16,000 objects, you know, ranging from antique coins to six foot tall paintings. There's just a lot that goes into that. Imagine what it takes to pack those things up. Um, I'm hoping I, that we don't have to see a move here for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I think the library is a great location for us. And we've got some growing pains that kind of fit into this space. But 
that's what we do. Maybe they're more like shrinking pains, <laughs> growing pains. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, and I think that it gives us also some opportunities. We may have lost some gallery space, but if that makes us think a little bit differently about how we serve the campus community and the community of Columbia, I think that can be a positive. Um, I've been talking with staff about, okay, how do we think about working externally a little bit more? We have some great experiences up at Mizzou North off campus. Let's think about other places off campus we might want to do some programming. So we're just going to do our best with the situation given to us. So you've worked as the president of a university and you understand the fiscal pressures and limitations of that role and, and, and a big institution. And you've also worked as a director of art museums, both within and outside of educational institutions. And so you have pulled at both ends of that rope and now you are firmly in the middle, able to see both points of view. And I'm curious to what extent that feels liberating versus slightly paralyzing. Yeah, that's a great question, Diana. I think it feels liberating in the sense that there's some hard decisions that institutions of higher education have to make every single day and every single month and every single year when they do their budgets. And I've been through that and I've been through that at smaller nonprofits. And it's quite an obligation because you're affecting people's lives. You're affecting students, their courses that they want to uh, study and the career paths they want. But now I look at it, my role here, my job is to make this museum relevant. It's to make it relevant to the students and to the faculty. And it's to make it continue to have it be relevant to the community. And that's how we show our value to Mizzou and to the numerous supporters we have outside of Mizzou from the community of uh, Columbia that support us. And we can continue to do the things we do. So I want to look at how we interact with students, how we interact with faculty and other departments and become uh, an invaluable resource for them. I think that's how the university will see us and that's how we're going to continue to succeed and thrive. I agree. I think that there is often perceived, uh, whether it's there or not, a divide between campus and the city, the town and gown separation, mm -hmm. where we have such great partnerships that can happen between the institution of the university and multiple nonprofits and arts organizations through the community. I mean, you have only been here for a couple of weeks, so it's early days, but are you, have you seen anything that you would like to reach out and grab hold of already in terms of those connections between the university and the city institutions? Yeah, being new to Columbia and new to the uh, university gives me a great chance to, I don't want to say ignore the previous histories, um, because you never want to do that. But I'm coming in with a different set of perspectives. I don't necessarily have the complete history. I will learn it. But I've also told my staff and colleagues that I don't feel bound by that previous history. And sometimes I don't even want to know. I just want to know what we can do going forward. I was lucky enough my first week here, Friday was First Fridays in the Arts District. So you bet I was out going into every little nook and cranny that was open that night and you know, trying to meet people, trying to see. Well, part of me just wanted to be there just incognito and kind of uh, <laughs> see what was happening and look at the art and just talk to a few people. And so I thought that was a pretty cool experience to get to see the arts community. And then I just went out and followed the sounds of live music and kind of walked around and saw where all those performances were going on. Obviously, I went to Sega Reeves Gallery, which is just a fantastic, beautiful facility. So I, I've got a lot of exploration to do to get to learn a little bit more and and build those partnerships. But the good news is everybody really seems to be in, to love that museum and to want to do stuff with it. 
And so I'm just going to make sure that people understand we're available to talk. And I love ideas. I love crazy ideas. We can't do them all, but if we don't hear a lot of them, we're not going to find the great ones that we can do. If we were sitting here in two or five years' time, what are some of the landmark developments you would like to have overseen? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, This might be because of part of my background. I'd like to see us here at the museum dabble a little bit more in contemporary art. I know we have a fantastic collection, and some of it is contemporary and modern. Um, I'd like to see us work more with living artists and try to do some commissions and some installation pieces, whether inside or outside. And if we can't find spots on campus, I know that's tricky. We might find other spots in the community where we can do something unique. So I think that's a great way to get engaged in the community. So I want to explore that. And we are an academic institution. I really want to try to build some ties with the academic faculty here, in in particular in the classics, archaeology, and religion department to find out what they're working on, how our collections might assist them and what they do, and whether there's any other types of uh, research or thinking about where we can partner with them. Uh, This museum used to be a leading research institution in the country. And I just want to explore that and see where those avenues are that we can do that that fits with what the faculty and students need. Do you think that the role of museums has evolved over time, particularly in this now, this post-pandemic world where a lot of arts organizations, museums are still struggling? But I mean, you are slightly protected being part of an Mm -hmm. educational institution. Do you think that the role of museums has evolved? Oh, absolutely it has. And I always point to public libraries as having been out in the vanguard on evolving forms of public institutions. They were really suffering from funding cuts, you know, decade, two decades ago, and realized that they had to quickly reinvent themselves to serve the community in different ways. I think you're seeing museums do that now. Museums are looking to do things beyond simply, and I say simply, it's not simple to hang paintings or sculptures on a wall or ancient artwork in a gallery. But museums are looking beyond that, saying how can they be involved in being a place where people can have important discussions about what's going on in this world? Survey after survey reveals that museums are one of the most trusted forms of institutions in this country. Museums are viewed as neutral places where people can get together and have open discussions and they respect one another. I think museums have been taking advantage of that, in particular during the pandemic, by, uh, like everybody did, you know, you push all your stuff over to Zoom. And I think that worked great for a while. I think people are, (laughs) like me, wanting to get back safely into the same room as people. But I think that was an opportunity where museums found what they could do for a community. And now I think it, we need to keep that mode going in the physical world where we continue to invite people in. But also we have to be out in the community and we have to figure out what communities need from us. The days where museums just put stuff up on the walls, put stuff on pedestals and said, come see us or not, those days are gone. That is a certain way to oblivion. So I'm, I'm more of the type that I want to be out there in the community figuring out what their needs are, what their interests are, and where that overlap is with our mission and what we can do. Now, I, I know from researching you and reading very old articles that you like the outdoors. You like small towns because that's where you come from. You like eating out. You like reading science fiction. And your musical tastes range from the Avett brothers to the Arctic monkeys who are from my neck of the woods. But tell me a little bit about the artworks in your own collection. Sure. Yeah. I have a lot of antique maps, probably upwards of 
30 or 40 maps that I've collected over the years. Typically, after I go somewhere, I try to find an antique map, but I've branched out a little bit. I have a lot of works of art from artists that I've worked with personally and have gotten to know. Most recently, John Flaming, who's an artist from outside of Dallas, Texas. He's just a great guy and just a great artist. He's kind of a modern West artist. It's almost a Cubist form of Western art, but it's Flaming, F-L-A-M-I-N-G. So I've got a few works of his. Uh, a good friend of mine from back in my Sheboygan days, Beth Lipman, who is a glass artist, very talented glass artist. She has works at the uh, Milwaukee Art Museum and in the Smithsonian Gallery. And I've got a few pieces of glass work. So it typically involves artists I've worked with where I will buy a piece of work from them while I've gotten to know them. So in your long list of employment and connections, I also noticed that you were on the community advisory board for Marfa Public Radio. And like many people, you had a pandemic podcast about the arts called the West Texas Cultural Cocktail. So might we be able to lure you to a helping position with KOPN Community Radio, Dan? Oh, sure. You bet. You bet. <laughs> I love Marfa Public Radio. It's just a fantastic organization. I mean, it's, it's really the only place down in that part of West Texas people can count on for news. And they're a small team and they just do amazing things. So I've always enjoyed that. Then like everybody, every other mid-aged guy in the world, I had a podcast for a few years, which was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. I had a great co-host, Randy Ham. And we ended up turning it into a podcast about how nonprofits were going to survive during the pandemic because you know, right after we started the podcast, the pandemic fired up. So it kind of pivoted for a while. Um, I hate that word. Sorry, pivot. It turned into (laughs) something different during the pandemic, like everybody else. But I still have all the gear. I've got all the uh, podcasting gear, just waiting for the right topic. Excellent. We'll be reaching out to you for KOPN then. So (laughs) look for an email. My guest has been Dan Eck, the new director as of last week for the University of Missouri's Museum of Art and Archaeology, which reopens at the end of the year in its new location in the lower east level of Ellis Library. Dan, it is a delight to have you join the Mid-Missouri Arts community, and I hope you will come back and chat again in the coming months. Thank you for making time to take the Arts Arrival interview. Thank you so much, Diana. You bet. I'll talk anytime. that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests, poet Dave Malone, director Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri and actors Anna Sundberg and Rob Glaws and museum director Dan Eck. Thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with more peaks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty Missouri! Missouri.